Good morning, church family. How blessed we are to freely gather together in the house of the Lord. And like the song says, and one day every knee will bow. If you are able, please stand for the reading of the word. We are reading this morning from Daniel chapter 8. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Uli Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with two horns, which I had been standing on the bank of the canal, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns, and the ram had no power to stand before him. But he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him, and there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, toward the glorious land. It grew great, even to the host of heaven, and some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host, and the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown, and a host will be given over to it together with a regular burnt offering because of transgressions, and it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking. Another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate? and the giving over of the sanctuary and host trampled underfoot. And he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary will be restored to its rightful state. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man, and I heard a man's voice from the banks of the Uli, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, O son of man, that the vision is the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to an appointed time of the end. And as, 
I'm sorry, as for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia, and the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for, as for the horn that was broken, O oh Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. Whoops. I'm sorry. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power, and he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit proper, prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. Heavenly Father, we are blessed to be here together in the house of the Lord. We are blessed to read your word. Heavenly Father, I ask now that all of us open our ears, open our minds, open our hearts to receive that which you have planned for us. Heavenly Father, I ask your special blessings on our anointed pastor, Pastor David, as he comes to the pulpit and explains to you your words, bringing forth an understanding and wisdom that we may not have had before. Lord, I ask your blessing on him. I ask your blessing on all of us and our families. In Christ's name we pray. When you think about the last time that somebody tried to explain something to you and you just didn't get it and you couldn't understand. Uh, maybe it was your grandkids trying to explain something to you that they're really passionate about and care about a lot and it just sounded like another language. Maybe it was the last time you were sitting in school or maybe a couple minutes ago, as you just heard this chapter read in God's Word. Um, I know for me, I can think of one of the things that I just can't get, no matter how much people try to explain it to me, is like cryptocurrency and NFTs or stuff like that. I, I've watched plenty of videos and listened to plenty of stuff, and I'm just like, I, okay, I kind of get it, but I am appalled and I don't understand. <laughs> now, that's some, somewhat similar, if not exactly, how Daniel feels in this chapter 8 after he hears and sees the vision and even has an angel explain to him exactly what this means. He still doesn't quite understand and doesn't grasp it. Now, we face that temptation um, when it comes to thinking about eschatology or God's Word. And eschatology is a fancy word um, for the study of the end times. Or what does the Bible say about the end? And so what can happen is we can get confused and we can say, Man, I'm confused. I don't get this. And so we can just throw up our hands and quit and say, okay, well, I know Jesus wins. I know it's all going to be good. So whatever. I, I tap out. I'm done. 
And that's okay. That's not a sinful attitude necessarily. But I think that Daniel gives us a better model. Um, that just because we don't understand doesn't mean that we have to give up. And just because we don't understand doesn't mean that there's nothing in it that we can understand. And so what we're going to do this morning as we look at Daniel chapter 8 is we're going to try and figure out, okay, what is in here that we do know? You know, what don't we know? And then what should we do even if we don't understand what's happening here? And so that's what we're going to look at. And so we're going to start with what we do know. And point one, if you take notes in your bulletin or on a piece of paper here for you, is we know that some of this prophecy is fulfilled and some foreshadows the future. So in Daniel chapter 8, in this vision here, we know that some of what he sees has already been fulfilled in the past, but some of it is foreshadowing what still is going to take place in the future. Because we see some in this passage, some of the parts are really easy to understand and some of it's a little more complicated, right? You know, some of it's rooted in history, like when it explains, well, this is Media and Persia and the king of Greece. And we go, okay, well, I've heard of those. Okay, yes, I get that. That, that seems good. It seems fairly, fairly clear. But there's some of it that seems to be talking about the future as well. And so how can this prophecy kind of be doing both of these things? What I think is happening here is that this prophecy is doing something that we can refer to as dual fulfillment. That's maybe a phrase that you've heard of before. And what it means is that some prophecies are really fulfilled twice in different ways. It's fulfilled once here historically or soon, and then there can be another fulfillment way off in the future. If you're confused by that, I'll explain it further and in the future, but that's just planting the seed here. But so let's look at the passage and kind of kind of see. So right away in verse 1 of chapter 8, it says, you know, this is the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar. So this is one of the later kings. This is right before Darius is about to come on the scene. And this is near the end of Belshazzar's rule when the hand is going to write on the wall. So it's kind of between or sometime before chapter 5 of Daniel or chapter 4, somewhere in there. And so Daniel finds himself, he's the one having this vision, but he has this vision at a particular place, which hasn't happened at any point in the book of Daniel so far. And two, he says, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam, and I was standing at the Eli Canal, and I saw this. And you might immediately go, well, okay, that's a lot of detail, Daniel. Why did you put that in there? Why has this never been there before? This must be here for a reason, right? Because nothing's in God's Word that's not intentional. Um, so what was the intention behind this? Well, and the reason that this city is here, that Daniel is in and that he sees, is Susa is the capital of the Persian Empire. So he sees himself there in the place where a great empire is about to arise and come and take over the Babylonians, which are currently ruling. So it's significant. You know, that, that's why that detail is there. So he's sitting there and he has this vision of a ram and a goat and they fight with each other and then some stuff with the horns. That's kind of the, the overall picture. But so it begins and he sees a ram in verse 3 and a ram standing on the bank of the canal and it has two horns. And both of them are high, but one's higher than the other and the higher one came up last. So the, the ram looks a little goofy, okay? It's not uniform. Most rams, their horns look pretty much the same unless there's been some kind of accident or something weird that's happened. But this ram, it's got one horn that seems to be much bigger than the other one. It's a little lopsided. And the angel later in, in verse 20, we can see why this happens. Because in verse 20, it tells us, well, the ram that you saw with the two horns, it's the kings of Media and Persia. And it's uneven because the Persian empire was much bigger. And as these two empires came together, the Persian one kind of took over it a little more. So that's, that's why that is happening there. 
And so he sees the ram and it charges westward and northward and southward and no beast could stand before him and there's no one who could rescue from his power. He does as he please and becomes great. So it's symbolic of the Persian Empire's greatness. It conquers the world and it's going all over in every direction and no one can stop it. But then out of nowhere in verse 5, as he's just watching the empire, and it still seems to be really great, the, the ram doesn't just get sick and then keel over. Out of nowhere in verse 5, behold, a male goat comes from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. It seems like it's just flying, which would be weird to see a goat doing that. But all of this would be weird to see anyway in your dreams. And so this goat is just flying over and has a conspicuous horn right between its eyes. So it only has one horn. Okay, and it's not two horns like you normally would see on either side. It's got one just kind of in the middle. It's almost like a unicorn-looking goat. And it's in the middle to let you know it hasn't lost a horn. This is intentional. This is the only horn that this goat has. And so this, this goat comes, and we know or in verse 20, the angel tells us later, well, the goat is the king of Greece. So it's symbolic of the Greece empire nation that's going to come. And so the one horn that's there can't be anyone other than Alexander the Great. Right, he was a young king. He conquered the world in his 20s and early 30s, quickly, almost out of nowhere, which is why this goat comes and it's flying and it doesn't even touch the ground. It's showing how quickly this conquering is going to happen. And it destroys the, the ram dramatically. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I'd seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. And I saw him come close to the ram. He was enraged against him. And he struck the ram, and he broke his two horns, and the ram had no power to stand before him. And he cast him down to the ground, and he trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. We know this happened. Persia was repeatedly beaten by Greece over a series of battles, different campaigns, until finally it was trampled and gone and no more. But suddenly something happens to the horn, because then the goat becomes exceedingly great in verse 8. But when he was strong, the great horn is broken. And instead there came up four conspicuous horns to the four winds of the west. So in the midst of this goat's great power, as it's, it's already destroyed the ram and it's just sitting there, and it's just still being great and awesome, the, the horn just falls off and is done which that's Alexander the Great, which it seems to be that fits because he died tragically at 32, kind of mysteriously. And historians still trying to debate and figure out, well, what happened and why. But in the, the height of his power, conquering all the world, he just keeled over and was done. And then after him, there were other horns that popped up, right? And it, it was split for... Instead of the great horn was broken, instead there came up four conspicuous horns towards the four winds of heaven. This is a little more straightforward, but it gets a little complicated because after he dies, his two sons were murdered not long after, and his empire was split by four generals who then kind of split it up into their own power. And none of them were as strong as he was, or none of them by themselves were as strong as the Greek empire was before. Um, but they, they did that, and we know that. But, so that's straightforward. This is a little, little easy, but then it gets more complicated. We get to verse 9. If you're following well, this is where it starts to get confusing. So out of one of these four horns and the four winds grows a little horn, and it grew exceedingly great towards the south and toward the east and towards the glorious land. Now, the glorious land that's talking about Jerusalem and Israel. It's talking about God's land, the promised land, where his people dwell. And so this little horn is 
seems to give us some trouble or figuring out who this is. And it grew great in 10, even to the host of heaven. And some of the hosts and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. So again, we need to picture this as Daniel seeing it. So he sees this other little horn that pops up and it starts trying to fight the heavens and fighting the host of heaven and fighting God. And later we see the prince of princes. So it's fighting the heavens and it takes stars and it knocks them down on the ground and it starts trampling over them. This seems to mean that the, the horn is fighting God and his people and the stars and the vision. It's, it's not angels, but it's the people of God, at least here in, in Daniel 8. And it even goes and it attacks the temple. And in verse 11, it became great even against the prince of the host and the regular burnt offering was taken away. And the place of his sanctuary is overthrown. So it's fighting the temple, it conquers the temple, and the offerings that happen every single day to make sacrifices for sin are done and aren't happening anymore. And the verse 12, and a host will be given over to it in the regular burnt offering because of the transgression. Why is all of this happening? Why is God letting this happen? Because his people have been sinning and this is their punishment. That ultimately God is still the one in control of this. It's not happening because these goats and rams or empires are stronger than God. It's happening because God is in control and he is allowing it to take place. So it throws them down. It's because of the transgression and it throws truth to the ground and it will act and prosper. And then later in 24... As the angel is kind of explaining this to you. He says he will cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are saints. So he's going to war with the people of God. So how are we to understand this little horn, right? What do we do with this? Because it sounds really similar to the little horn we read about last week in chapter 7 of Daniel, right? We read about another little horn. And it was a little horn, but it was different. There's similarities and differences. Both of them seem to be fighting the saints. But the other horn had eyes and a mouth and was great and was doing all these, these different things. And we also know that, okay, the other little horn came from the fourth beast, right? Not the third beast. And most would have interpreted the fourth beast as being from Rome. And so that's, it seems like in chapter 7, that little horn is the Antichrist. And this one, well, it seems a lot like the Antichrist, but it's coming from Greece, so what do we do with that? How do we put these things together? What is God's word trying to say here? Because both of these horns, I think, sound fairly antichrist-like to me, destroying the temple, taking away the sacrifices, fighting God and his people. So how are we to understand it? This is where, going back to what I said before, this is why I think part of this is dual fulfillment. Where we know that much of this is prophecy has already been fulfilled. You can go and read about Alexander the Great in your history books. You can go, go to Greece and go to Persia and Iran and see many of the ruins of these things that God prophesied would take place already. It's history. It's happened. But some of it, I think, is still coming in the future. Most of the time that we see dual fulfillment pop up in Scripture, it's usually uh, messianic prophecies. It's usually prophecies that are about something in the immediate, but really is pointing to Jesus and that he will come. And even the prophets at the time didn't understand that what they were saying was actually pointing to Christ. And he was going to fulfill it in an even greater way than they imagined. You know, Isaiah 7.14 is, is a big one that normally gets pointed to. It's the, the prophecy of, you know, a young virgin will give birth. And before, you know, this child grows up, these two kings that you're fighting, you're worried about are going to be passed away and you don't have to worry about them anymore. 
On one hand, it was talking about an immediate baby not born to a virgin, but just a young woman, but it was more pointing towards Jesus and how he would be born of a virgin. When Isaiah gave that, I don't think he was really fully understood everything that God meant in it. But so it's kind of this dual fulfillment idea in this. And so I think that's part of what's happening here with this little horn. And this little horn is fulfilled partially historically by a Greek king. He was the eighth king in line from one of these four kingdoms that broke up. And his name was Antiochus Epiphanes IV, which is a mouthful. But he was the king from the Seleucid Empire, which is one of the four kingdoms from Alexander the Great. And he was never supposed to be king originally, actually. He was just an uncle. His brother was the king, and then his brother died. And then his brother, his nephew was a young child named Demetrius, and he was supposed to be the heir, and he was young. But Antiochus seized power through intrigue and got enough support to make himself the king, which is part of why I think this says that, you know, he was, it was a little horn at first, or he wasn't great in his own power in the beginning. He was just an uncle who stole the throne. He wasn't, you know, born into the kingdom with all the power on him. And he's significant not just because of that, because he eventually conquered and went to war with the Jews and God's people. He killed tens of thousands of Jews just in Jerusalem that we know of during a siege. And he tried to wipe out the Jewish faith and force them to serve the gods of Greece. He banned circumcision for their infants. He murdered a high priest and replaced him with somebody who would obey him and do just what he wanted. He stopped the sacrifices in the temple and he banned them, which fulfilled, you know, the regular burnt offering was taken away. He even went into the temple, built up an altar to Zeus, brought an idol into God's place, and then sacrificed a pig, an unclean animal, on top of it to ruin and desecrate the temple. He banned the scriptures. He would burn them when he found them. And if anyone had copies of God's word with them or a copy of Daniel 8, they would be murdered and killed. There was an intense amount of persecution for God's people. And the persecu- for about three years, he terrorized the Jews. His persecution was so great, it eventually led to a Jewish revolt um, led by the Maccabees. Which the name probably may or may not sound familiar to some of you. You can read some more about this kind of period in, you know, First and Second Maccabees, which are in the Apocrypha. They're not inspired. They're not part of God's word or the canon. Um, but they are historical records of this time period and some of what this evil king did. And his name, the, the last part, Epiphanes, which he named himself, it, it translates to God manifest. Which if you're calling yourself that, that kind of reveals, you know, your narcissism and what you believe about your own greatness. Say, look at me, I am God manifest before you. So that's what he does. But, you know, what about verse 14? How does this fit all of it? So in verse 14, you know, at the end, you know, the angels are talking. They say, how long is this going to happen? How long will the, the temple be, be harmed? And how long will these offerings not take place? And how long will the host be trampled underfoot? And this holy one says, for 2,300 evenings and mornings. And then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. The first is important for us to notice that this little horn, whoever it was, whether you agree with me or, or not, at least in part that he's fulfilled historically, his oppression is controlled by God down to the day. His days are numbered. And they're numbered by God, and he's got it, and he's counting down. The heavenly host can count down. Which is not just true of this, but it is true of any oppressor or tyrants 
Our God is in control and their days are numbered. We don't know what they are as much as we might wish we could ask an angel and he would tell us, well, here's how long you have to worry about that tyrant. But we can know and rest in the fact that our God has their days numbered and he is in control. They might seem like they're winning or like they're fighting like the little horn in Daniel 7, but they are not. Their day will come. But there's two different ways we can interpret this number here. Because the, the ways that the, the Hebrews did days and evenings, um, the way that they counted them is much different than the way that we would. We typically think of days in 24-hour periods, right? The day starts at 12.01 and then it ends at you know, 11.59 again the next day. That, that's how our days kind of work. Uh, but the, the Hebrews can count days and evenings the same. It's a, it's a little confusing. So we can either count it, can either mean, you know, 2,300, 24-hour days, or it could mean, you know, 1,150 evenings and 1,150 mornings. Both of those would fit in how the, the Jews count this. But either way, um, Antiochus Epiphanes actually fits this because if it's 2,300 days, which is about six and a half-ish years, um, then his, his reign starts when he kills the high priest and the persecution begins. Or if it's 150 days, three years-ish, it starts when he sets up the altar to Zeus and the temple and the offerings seem definitely stop at that point. Either way, it seems to fit. And most biblical scholars um, agree that Antiochus actually fits this well and say, no, this is the little horn. And in fact, he fits this so well um, that those, the secular scholars, those who are more theologically liberal would say, well, you know, Antiochus, he fits Daniel 8 too well. There's no way that Daniel could have lived before this man came on the scene. All of Daniel had to have been written way later than this. Had to have been somebody in the second century after Antiochus is already dead and he's writing about it again. Because these details are, are too much. How could somebody know that Persia and Media and Greece is going to come and that this man is going to come and rule in this way? This can't possibly be it. So this had to have happened later. That's part of why I think that this is... Which I, I reject that idea because, well, I already believe that God was born to a virgin and came down and lived in human flesh and cru was crucified, died, and buried, and then was resurrected for our sins. Okay, that's about as crazy as you can get if you're willing to accept that. If you're willing to accept that, I'm willing to accept almost anything else that that God says, which I am. You have to make that decision for yourself. But so since the, he fits it so well, this is why I think part of this prophecy is already fulfilled in him. But what about the end, right? You might say, well, pastor, I noticed in verse 17 it said this vision is for the time of the end. And in 19 it said it refers to the appointed time of the end. In 26, hey, he's, Daniel's told seal up the vision. It refers to many days from now, which usually seal up the vision is, hey, don't worry about it. You know, just roll up that scroll, put it back in the closet. You'll come to it later, but you don't need it today. And this is what will lead some to say, well, no, 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 it's not about Antiochus at all. It's about the, the future and the, the end end or the last days or the end times. Well, I think it's both of these here because the end, it can mean uh, multiple things. It can mean the end times. It can mean the last days. Um, it also can just mean whenever the prophecy is going to be fulfilled. That is a normal way that sometimes the prophets will, will use that as well. So, but I think both are in mind. I think that Daniel 8, it's warning Daniel and it's warning the Jews about Antiochus who is going to come. And it's also foreshadowing the Antichrist who will come in the future that we are still waiting for. And who will be even worse. 
the Bible is not just full of foreshadowing about Jesus, but there's also some about foreshadowing of the Antichrist as well. Because most of what we know about the Antichrist in other places and other scriptures is found here as well. And the, the little horn in, Dan, in Daniel 7 and this little horn, there's a lot of similarities between them. And we also need to remember as well that there are antichrists in every age. The Apostle John tells us this in, in 1 John 2, 2.18. He says, you know, children, it's the last hour. He tells us this is the last days. And all the other apostles at Pentecost said, we, we know this is the last days. In the last days, the Holy Spirit will come and pour out himself. And your, your daughters and your sons will prophesy. So this is the last hour. And you've heard the Antichrist is coming. And now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know it's the last hour. So already in the church's earliest days with the apostles, they're saying there's already Antichrists here among us now. If that was happening then, I think it's only safe to assume it's probably st was still happening after that and is still happening today. Now, what level or how do you figure that out? I don't know, but John says they were there, so there must be there some here today as well. And it makes sense, right? Jesus tells us when he talks about the end, well, Jesus, when are you returning? Well, when are these things going to take place? He says, well, the Son of Man doesn't know the day or the hour. You just say, well, I don't know exactly when this is going to happen, or he at least is withholding this information from us. Well, and if it seems like Jesus doesn't know exactly when he's coming back, why in the world would Satan know? And why would he know enough to prepare for the one Antichrist that's going to come and be born and raised and prepared just the perfect moment? At least that, that's my thought. I don't know. I'm just trying to piece together what I do understand from Scripture to explain what I don't understand. But so I think it appears that our enemy is constantly raising, preparing, and using antichrists in every age all over the place, just doing his best as he thinks to prepare for the end. But ultimately, all of them are under God's control. So ultimately, this passage is not just about Antiochus or Greece and Persia, but it's also a warning to us today about what will come in the end. That The antichrist will do many of these same things, but he will be limited down to the very day of his power. Our temptation can be to start trying to figure out, well, who is the Antichrist today then? It must be all of my least favorite presidents or my least favorite political um, opponents. But what we can do is instead we should just look forward to the fall of every Antichrist from their thrones, wherever they may be, whoever they are. And I don't think that we need to spend more time looking for the Antichrist than we do looking for Christ. It appears that there are some Christians I interact with who seem to be far more concerned with Satan and with demons and with the Antichrist than they are with Jesus and his kingdom and his throne and what he's doing, which seems to be an unhealthy thing. And often we can get confused here, and Christians have gotten in trouble with this all, all throughout every age. Some of my heroes, even in church history or the Reformation, fell into the same trap of trying to figure out, well, who is the Antichrist and when and how can we fight it? But ultimately, I, I think what we see, what helps us understand Daniel 8 better is to know that some of this has already been fulfilled, but some of it is just foreshadowing what still is to come. And both of these are true. So that's what we do know. But our, our second point here, what, what don't we know? Well, we don't know the whole picture. We don't know the, the whole picture. You find yourself probably not able to understand all of eschatology or the end, right? If you don't understand every single part of Daniel, let alone every single part of chapter 8, or the whole book of Revelation or Ezekiel or the rest, you're in pretty good company. 
Okay, don't beat yourself up. Don't think, well, maybe if I had better faith, maybe if I went to seminary, maybe if I was smarter, then I could figure all of this out. Remember, I thought that because I saw that I had a class in eschatology when I was at Dallas. I thought, oh, good, I don't get it, but I'm going to take a class. And then when the class is done, I'm going to get it all. I'm going to get the whole picture. That'll be really great. And I was disappointed at the end that I got a lot more, but I still didn't get everything that I wished I would have. But because, well, we see we're in good company. Daniel himself doesn't seem to understand what chapter 8 is about. He doesn't seem to get all of it. I mean, look at verse 27. That's the last verse in the end. And I, Daniel, I was overcome and lay sick for some days. And I rose and was about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and I did not understand it. Hear that last part again. I was appalled by the vision and I did not understand it. Daniel doesn't understand what he saw. Now, if you've been with us from the beginning of our study in Daniel, you should know that this is a very strange statement for Daniel to make. Because back in chapter 1, in 117, when he was a young man, it says that Daniel had all under, understanding and all visions and dreams. So the spiritual gift that God gave to him, that he has always understood every single vision, every single dream, every single problem anyone has ever brought before him. He's interpreted both of Nebuchadnezzar's dreams without any difficulty whatsoever. He interpreted the writing on the wall. He has all of these supernatural gifts, and he's never failed to understand anything until now. And it's also weird because how does he not understand it? He had an angel explain it to him. Who he asked, hey, what does this mean? And an angel sat down and from 15 to 26 went through and told him what all of this vision meant and gives way more detail than we got in the last vision in chapter 7, which it seems like Daniel understood most of. Here, both of these beasts are identified, and yet Daniel doesn't quite get it all. He doesn't get the whole picture. I think this should be an encouragement to us in part, that, okay, if I don't understand all of eschatology, if I got pieces of it, man, there's things here that I understand. There's some verses, there's some chapters I get more than others. There's some things about the Antichrist, maybe I've got that really figured out, or, ah, oh, maybe I don't at all, that we shouldn't just think or assume that you're a really bad Christian if you're appalled and don't get it. Maybe if you read the right kind of book or listened to, you know, a pastor who was more understanding, then you could figure it all out. It's okay if your response is like Daniel's. And it's also okay if you see how Daniel responds in the beginning of 27. And I, Daniel, was overcome, and I lay sick for some days. Daniel seems to be bedridden with worry and anxiousness. That he's so confused and bothered by the situation, and he's struggling with it enough to try and get it, that it physically makes him sick. It makes him ill. Now, he, he doesn't stay there forever, but it should be reassuring for us, I think, if you found yourself in, in thinking about this and it just makes your head swim and feel in a fog and makes your heart beat faster and you, you don't get it and it makes you worry. If Daniel was worried about this enough to be bedridden for a time, then it's probably okay that you have a little anxiety in trying to think through some of this. You're not the only person who's ever felt that way. Especially, you know, and I think this too, it's a warning for us in one way. And one way it's meant to be an encouragement, in another it's a warning. Because if Daniel doesn't understand everything about the end, if he doesn't understand everything about this chapter, then I'm not quite so sure that we can either. 
Yeah, I'm really wary personally of anybody who has all of the answers to eschatology, who knows everything about Revelation and can explain every single vision and every single thing, and, and not just that, but how it's all going to play out in current events today. Some seem to be really prepared with that. Every new news story, they're going to tell you exactly how it fits with Daniel and Revelation. Oh, don't worry, I'm going to explain this to you. I've seen a lot of this with everything going on with Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the worries, okay, what is going to happen and the anxiety that comes from that. There are people who seem to have all the answers. They have no, no confusion and all the confidence in the world. You know, they, they read verse 27 about Daniel being confused and not understanding everything that's happening, and they would say to themselves, well, it's a good thing I know more than Daniel now. He was confused because he didn't know it all, but now I've come along and I do understand it. So here, let me help you. Because I see the whole picture. I don't think we see the whole picture. We, we see as much as God has intended us to see and as much as we need so that we know we can trust Him and so that we can know He is in control no matter what we see, no matter what will or won't play out on the world stage in the time that we're here on this earth. Much of this is hidden from our view. Now, what I don't mean by this is I don't mean we just have to sit and go, well, I know Jesus wins, so who cares? I don't have to worry about anything. I don't think that is supposed to be our response either. But I do mean that it's okay if we don't get every single detail and know all of it. If we don't have every single piece of the puzzle, but we have enough of the puzzle put together that we can see what it's supposed to look like, even if there's some pieces missing. And we're just waiting for God to work it out. But so if we can't understand all of it, well, what? What are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to respond? Well, the application for us this morning is, I think, comes from, from Daniel and what he does. He gives us the model. He doesn't understand, but he arose and he goes about the king's business. So our, our last point in your blanks is that I think that we should be about the king's business. We should be about the king's business. So remember, Daniel doesn't understand. It makes him bedridden, but he doesn't stay there. Okay, so he is bothered by the future enough that he's anxious about it, and anxious enough that it really is debilitating for a few days. So that's okay, but he doesn't stay there for the rest of his life. Eventually, he rises up and he moves on. Some, right, they get too obsessed with the end. And they're not obsessed enough about, well, when is Christ going to return? Because I'm really excited about him in the kingdom. They're more trying to get obsessed with the Antichrist and the mark of the beast. And they're afraid with every new technological advancement. This must be the mark of the beast, so I have to be careful. Don't get a vaccine. Don't use that barcode. Oh, there's chips in the credit cards now. Oh, this must be the mark of the beast. So I, just take a deep breath. <laughs> don't be like Daniel. Don't stay bedridden. Don't stay there. Worry about that for a little bit. And then when you're done, you need to stop and you need to rise up and go and be about the king's business. This is what Daniel does. Even though he doesn't understand, he is about the king's business. Our goal in life is not to understand all that Jesus has told us about eschatology or even the end. Our goal isn't to understand the end, but it's to prepare for the end. And Daniel doesn't dedicate himself to solving the mysteries. He dedicates himself to serving God. And the, word, the work that Daniel does is significant for us to see. Daniel goes to work for the king, and the king he's talking about is King Belshazzar. The king of Babylon, he's going to work for a pagan Babylonian king who does not love God, who does not care about God, and will, who will commit blasphemies against God. And a king who is about to be destroyed soon. Probably, we don't know exactly when this takes place, probably within a year this king is about to be killed and murdered and his kingdom is going to disappear as it's conquered by the Persians. 
And not just that, that Persian Empire too is going to be destroyed and conquered by Greece. And then the little horn Alexander is going to die and it's going to be conquered even more. So Daniel, as he sees all of that, our temptation would be to quit, right? Well, I'm going to take care and serve this king. He's just about to die. Why would I care about doing what he wants in this kingdom? This kingdom is about to get conquered three different times. What a waste. But like a child, well, why do I have to make my bed? I'm just going to, you know, make it dirty again later. Why do I have to clean up? I'm just going to make another mess. That could be what Daniel would say. And we would understand. We would say, Daniel, you've got good biblical backing for not being about the king's business. Because you can just wipe your hands. It's all going to burn anyway. But he works faithfully for a doomed sinful king in a foreign land. And it's not because he's about King Belshazzar's business. It's about because he's about King Jesus' business. He is not working for the Babylonian king primarily. He is working for Yahweh. And Daniel's actions, I think, should inform us and in our response to eschatology or thinking about the end. How should we live if we know that the end is coming? Well, we go to work. We do what God has entrusted us to do here today, even if it seems menial, even if it will fade and it will go away. Daniel knows that his work is going to disappear and eventually be meaningless by the way that the world would judge it. But he does it because he is working faithfully for God. He is obeying God in the minor and small circumstances of his life. Because the way that we as Christians right, would determine what we do the way that we make decisions, isn't based on the, the way that the world would do it. Well, what is going to have the greatest impact? Well, what's going to give me the greatest, you know, rate of return? What's going to be worth my time? How I would judge it, how we would see it. We don't judge it by any of that. We judge it by, well, what is going to please our God? What will be obedient to Him? And what has He asked me to do today? Okay, well, that is what I'm going to do, even if it seems menial or ordinary or meaningless, as the world would say it. You know, John Wesley, a, a revival preacher during the Great Awakening, was once asked, you know, what would you do if you knew that Jesus was going to return at, at midnight? What would you do if you knew the end was coming? Well, what would you do today? And I love his response. He said, well, ma'am, you know, I would spend today just as I intend to spend it now. I would preach this evening at Gloucester, preach again at 5 tomorrow morning, and then after that, you know, I'm going to arrive to, to Coosburg, preach in the afternoon, I'm going to meet some societies there, then I've got to go meet Reverend Martin at his house, he's going to entertain with me, I'm going to go home, talk and pray with my family, go to my room at 10 o'clock, pray, lie down to rest, and wake up in glory, because I want God to find me doing what he had already appointed me to do. So, okay, Jesus is coming back tomorrow. Well, I know what he's already asked me to do today, so I'm going to keep doing that. I'm not just going to wipe my schedule clean and sit and wait and stare at the sky with my telescope. I'm going to be about the king's business. Wesley wanted to be about the king's business. And Jesus, he told several parables about his return, about a master who would be gone and leave his servants in charge, and then he's going to come back, but they don't know when he's coming back. And in all of them, he emphasized that our need is to be prepared and ready. And readiness doesn't mean that we sold all our belongings and that we quit our jobs and we sat on a hill and we waited for him to come back. It meant that we were busy doing what he asked us to do, waiting for him. 
We're to be about the business of our king, and that means living a life, an obedient life of faith. It means preaching the gospel, and sometimes it even means serving the kings of the world faithfully in a way that honors God. You know, the, the gospel. The gospel means that we don't have to do anything to earn anything. Right? We are not saved by Jesus because of our works. We do not have to do good things. We don't have to make sure we read more of the Scripture or we go every single Sunday, even if it's daylight saving time and, I, and I'm tired because I forgot and I'm really exhausted. I don't want to do that, but I got to go there so I can make sure I can get my salvation. Or we got to give more money or do more stuff. We don't have to do those things in order to make God love us so that we can go to heaven one day. Okay, we have salvation because it is a free gift earned by Jesus on the cross. That he offers freely to all of us, to any who want it, can come and find forgiveness and eternal life. And you don't have to do a thing. And because of that, that sets us free. That sets us free from having to live lives where we have to follow all of these rules because if we don't, God will send us to hell forever. But as long as I keep it, then I'm good. No, we can do it just because we're set free and we love Him. And so now we can just do the King's business. And because I'm set free, it doesn't matter if what I do changes the whole world or nobody ever sees it. And when I die, no, everyone forgets about me and no one comes to my funeral. The gospel sets you free from having to worry about any of that. So we can just be about the business of our King no matter what it is. Because what gives our work meaning is whether or not it pleases our God. Another not whether anyone notices or cares or throws us a party or gives us awards or names things in our honor because we were so awesome. I'm learning this more slowly with having young children. There's a lot about raising kids that is ordinary and menial and repetitive and normal. Lots of diapers, changing, wiping butts, helping my children go to the bathroom, trying to potty train Calvin still. And so we get excited every time he just uses the bathroom. That's very ordinary. That's not that exciting. What makes it meaningful isn't just, you know, oh, because children are so wonderful and they're awesome and it's preparing life. All of that is true as well. But what makes those moments meaningful as a believer is because I know that being obedient to God, even in this small thing here, matters for all eternity. That everything you do, whether it's tending your garden, even if Jesus returns tomorrow, playing with your grandkids or doing your work for the king that you're under in your place, well, all of it matters. And it matters as long as it's being faithful to our God. So how can we prepare how can we prepare for the end? Well, in light of the end of the world, the Antichrist, and all of these kingdoms that may and beasts that will come, we can be obedient to Jesus in our small corner of the world. And whatever small ways he's given us and whatever business he has entrusted to you, do it and do it well. And be about his business because God sees it and it matters. And it matters to him. So where will you be if Christ returns? How will you prepare? Will you be like Daniel? Will you be about his business? 
Will you be about your own business? Or will you be still bedridden, obsessed, trying to solve the mysteries that you couldn't possibly understand? I hope that when the Lord returns, if he returns soon, he will find Tanglewood Bible Fellowship to be a church that's about his business. That we will be a church family that works in our community faithfully, that serves and loves our neighbors, that worships and preaches the gospel, and that we would honor God in every area of our life, especially the small ones, not just the big ones. So this morning we've, we've talked about what we know. We know that some of this, this prophecy is fulfilled historically, and some of it is foreshadowing what's going to come. We know that we don't see the whole picture, but we don't need to. Now, what should we do? We should respond to all of this by being about our king's business today and whatever God has put on your to-do list for the rest of your week. I'm going to pray for us and then invite our worship team to come up and lead us in song once more. God, I ask that you would help us. Um, Lord, I, I know that there is probably some who have anxiety in this room. Um, some who can identify with Daniel laying in bed, worried and appalled at what he doesn't understand. Lord, I ask for your grace and your mercy. I ask that you would give peace. Lord, especially um, with everything going on with the war in Ukraine, we would pray for peace. We pray that you would crush tyrants and that you would bring justice and protect the weak and the orphan and the widow. And Lord, we, we pray that you would help us, uh, that you would calm our anxiety and our fears that we may see from watching the news and have no idea what tomorrow may or may not bring. Lord, that we would know that you have numbered the days of every tyrant and that you are in control, and that we don't see the whole picture, but we can trust that you do and that you know. I would you help us to be about your business in whatever small corner of the world that you have placed us. We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. Why don't you stand as we worship our Savior once more. Amen. Before I read our benediction, one quick announcement. We're, next week, we're going to have our TBF intro class. For those of you who are newer to TBF or who are just wanting to know more about who we are, what makes us us, I just want to invite you to come to that. It doesn't commit you to anything at all, um, but we'll just have a good time. There'll be lunch um, and child care provided for those who need it. Um, but so our, our benediction from Romans, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. God bless you. Go in peace.